Well, very good morning. My name is Andrew Barr. I'm a member here at uh, Kingfisher Church, Little Paxton. And we are looking at the passage Claire very kindly read for us. That's chapter 25, verses 1, 2, 3. God has been very kind, and it's um, a nice warm day, because I've never um, preached in a coat before, so unfortunately I don't have to wear one. If you do see me shivering, it is because I'm cold, not for any other reason. But before we look at this passage, why don't we ask God to help us? Heavenly Father, pray that your Holy Spirit will open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, not only hear what you have to say, but through your Holy Spirit, please apply it to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Weddings in 2020, surprisingly enough, have been down 32% in 2019. 4.8 billion lost to the wedding industry. And weddings are often a central theme, aren't they? Plays, novels, films. So, four weddings and a funeral. Um, not one of my, I much prefer Notting Hill. But, you know, we have all the friends, one of the... Um, one of their friends is getting married, dashing across London. My Fair Lady with Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison have Eliza Doolittle and her father, sung by Stanley Doolittle, um, sings Get Me to the Church on Time. Far from Madding Crowd, possibly one of my favorite novels. You can ask me why sometime. We have Sergeant Troy being stood up at the altar because his... Uh, bride-to-be turns up at the wrong church, and by the time she works out where the actual marriage is meant to take place, Sergeant Troy has uh, stormed out, having been stood up. And even, I mean, I mentioned there weren't many weddings last year, but my daughter, Katrina, actually was married on the 1st of that's October. No, I got that wrong already. 1st of August, 2020. Um, and I must confess, because we didn't, we didn't have, you know, limousines and all the rest of it, one of her friends due to take her from uh, where she was living to the church. It did seem a little bit delayed to me. My, you know, Katrina's one of those who's always prompt. And one or two sort of doubts have swing in my mind as I waited to uh, welcome her and her bridegrooms. But anyway, I mean, you might be wondering why, I have, why I've got this strange... Um, interest in weddings. Well, I haven't. I don't read wedding magazines or anything like that. But obviously, a wedding is central to the passage we've just read, this parable. And it's a parable to be prepared, to be ready for Christ's return. You know, from the second half of chapter 24, which we looked at last week, um, to the end of this chapter 25, there are five parables grouped together. And four of those five are all regarding Jesus' return. And the message in all four is clearly about being prepared, getting ready. Yet each one of the four parables about Jesus' return has a different angle, a different perspective. In the parable we're going to look at, we're looking at now, the emphasis is that there are some things that can't be shared they can't be transferred when we're preparing ourselves to be ready for Christ's return. There's an individual responsibility required. 
It's a parable, if you like, of personal accountability. So let's take a look then together at these 13 verses. The parable of the ten virgins, or as I'm going to refer to from now on, ten bridesmaids. This might not be totally sort of the right sort of accurate, but it's good enough. And I think uh, bridesmaids is what I'm going to go with. So have a look at verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven would be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So the setting for this parable is a wedding. No doubt a typical wedding in villages and towns up and down Judea at that time. Weddings back then were protracted affairs, often lasting a week or more. Time of great joy, celebration and feasting for families and the whole community as a whole. And the tradition was that the bridegroom proceeded to the bride's family home to escort her back to the bridegroom's family home, where the doors would be shut, ceremony and the celebration would begin. As I say, they could, it could be an extended period of time, for a week or even two weeks. And it seems that these weddings, Judea at this time, would often take place in the evening when it was dark, as the bridegroom and his family possessed back, possessed back to the bridegroom's family home. There was no hurry or urgency. The wedding party would stop on the way to greet friends and family and well-wishers. There was no timetable, strictly a choreographed, you know, ceremony like we have weddings in our, you know, today and now. I think the only people who don't get the message about timing is the photographers, wedding photographers my experience. They seem to go on forever. But you know, we had things all neatly planned. It wasn't like that. At some point though, along the route back to the bridegroom's family home, the bride's party would be met by the bridegroom, um, by the bride's party, by the uh, bridesmaids, and escort them back in a torchlight procession. But as, I meant, there was no, as I mentioned, there was no strict uh, timetable is in celebrations, the bridesmaids had to be ready, be prepared as the wedding party procession could appear at any moment in time. And with these parables, there's always a danger that we try to press a point or points beyond their original intention. With that thought in mind, though, I don't think it seems uh, unwarranted to see the bridegroom as Christ, as Jesus himself this parable. Back in Matthew chapter 9, we don't need to turn back to it, verse 15, John the Baptist's followers asked Jesus why his disciples do not fast as the Pharisees or John's followers do. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of a bridegroom warn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be ready, from, um, will be taken from them. Then they will mourn. So Jesus in Matthew 19 verse 15, he's identifying himself as the bridegroom. And in the Old Testament, God often describes himself as the bridegroom to his bride, the people of Israel. And remember, the first people to have heard these words, his words would have been predominantly Jewish because this is between, this is sandwiched between when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, shortly he will be tried in a mock trial, executed on the cross, three days later will rise again. And those who originally heard this would have been predominantly Jewish, as I say. 
And also, a while back, we looked at chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, the parable of a wedding banquet. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king at a wedding banquet for his son. Again, it seems warranted to see the wedding bank banquet. At the end of verse 10, in this parable, as a messianic banquet, God's people, and only God's people, be invited to. Think of Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, the wedding <coughs> supper of the Lamb. So that's the picture there. Hence, we also see here of Jesus' Messiahship. He's both fully God and fully man, you know, which has been right at the heart of the questions we've seen in these last few chapters. When Jesus had these disputes with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the question is, who is he? And you know, God is, uh, Jesus is both fully God and fully man, God's anointed one, the Messiah. So what are the ten bridesmaids in this parable? They're a picture of a division between those who are ready to welcome Jesus and those who are unprepared, those who are wise and those who are foolish. Verse 2, uh, verse two, five of them were foolish, five were wise. And again, that division, wise and foolish. Being foolish and wise is another one of those constant themes we see throughout um, the Bible, certainly in Matthew's Gospel. Think back to Matthew 7. Again, we don't need to look back, but verses 24 to 27, we have a story of a wise and foolish builder, much loved by children's songwriters. Um, that said, I think any well-written song, be it for children or not, rich in Scripture, rich in the Bible, is good for all of us to listen to. But um, in that, it's the wise man who builds his life on, upon the rock, builds his life on Jesus. And so in the parable we're looking at, verse 2, if you have a look, tells us five of them, as we've said, were foolish, and five of them were wise. And so what is it that makes... Five of them, five of these bridesmaids, foolish, five of them wise. So take a look at verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. And contrast that in verse 4 with the wise bridesmaids. They took oil in jars along with the lamps. These lamps, we call them lamps, they're probably torches. They would have been rag wrapped around a stick, soaked in oil. They would have probably given about 10 minutes' worth of light, and then they'd have to be dipped back again in the oil, in the um, uh, container the oil was in. And if you had a container of oil, it would probably last, give you about three hours' worth of you know, uh, illumination. So all 10, if we look at these verses, fall asleep. You see that at the end of verse 5, don't we? So that's not the division between the wise and foolish bridesmaids. It's not about staying awake. And if we look at some other parables about Jesus, it does indeed say, stay awake, don't go to sleep. But here, the division isn't that they go to sleep. Say so this is, um, points to the fact that Jesus' return, we don't know when it will be. And we looked at chapter 24, verse 32, which tells us not to get into speculation or, you know, working out when he might come. But you need to be ready. You know, so Jesus will return. That is 
certain, but we don't know when. And, you know, this long delay we see in this parable is pointing to that. So when the cry goes out, if you have a look at verse 6, here's the bride come out to meet him. Only the wise brides were ready, were able to join the bridal procession, join the wedding banquet. Look what happened at the end of verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. The door was shut. I mean, that's an ominous warning that there's a time when it will be too late for God's timetable, too late to prepare yourself for Christ's return. These wise brides, the one who brought oil along with their lamb, they'd exercise that personal responsibility, being prepared in advance. They're also realistic. Have a look at verse 8. Do you see that there? The foolish one said to the wise, give us some oil. And what did the wise bridesmaids say in verse 9? No. And in the context of this parable, of being ready, this is not selfish. I know we're meant to share, and it's one of the things we're taught. But, in, you know, we don't want to press these points too hard. This is a story, a parable. It's not about selfishness, but a reminder even a warning, no one can rely on another person's readiness or preparation. That is something we personally have to do. Excuse me, my pages of a Bible are blowing away from where I should be. So we have this contrast, don't we, in the fate of wise and foolish bridesmaids. The foolish bridesmaids, they were late to the party, as we see in verse 11, standing outside, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. The response? Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And that's uh, hard, isn't it? That's a stark reminder. In fact, it echoes another response um, in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23 again. No need to turn to it. And I'll just read out what it says. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. There will be a time when it will be too late Get ready. We need to be wise, not foolish. And everyone likes to think they're wise, don't they? Not foolish. So maybe we could think about that. So why don't people get ready? Why do people think there'll always be time to sort things out? Why do they think they can rely on someone else's readiness? Why do they think God won't judge? Or close the door of heaven? They say these are hard, they're sobering words. As we reflect on what this parable has to say to us now, you know, particularly here, professing, professing church, they're vital, important words with regards to our need to be ready, Christ's return. See, on the face of it, all ten bridesmaids looked the part, ready to welcome the bridegroom. 
All ten had been invited to the banquet. All ten expected to be admitted to the wedding feast. Yet only half of them, five, were prepared to meet him and were welcomed into the wedding banquet by the bridegroom. What of the other five? They had not taken that responsibility necessary to ensure they were ready when the bridegroom came to meet them. What's the point of having a torch with no oil to lit? Which leads to those words, I don't know you from Jesus. As we look at uh, this parable, unlike the two which sandwich it either side in 24 and um, later on in 25, how we get ready it actually isn't spelt out for us. It's not really spelt. We don't really see what it is. However, I think Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, may help us through as we think about how do we prepare this parable about getting ready for Jesus. So have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's verses 8 to 11. It would be worth turning to it. And my Bible, which is the NIV 2011 anglicized version, it's page 1188, if that helps you. If you've got another version, you're on your own. But um, if you get to Philippines, then Colossians, then you get to Thessalonians, you're in business, okay? And if you've got a phone or a tablet, I'm sure you'll get there quicker than the rest of us. I mean, the church in Thessalonia, um, Paul had um, established on that first missionary journey. And this, the letter he wrote was probably around 45, 50 AD, that after Christ died. So. Um, just under 2,000 years ago. But in a way, they had, like we do, questions about Christ's return, about uh, what happens to those who have died already. So they had various questions, and Paul wrote to them to reassure them. So this is um, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. But since we belong today, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that we, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Some things in the Christian life are faith, that hope of salvation through Christ Jesus, they just can't be transferred or shared or acquired through association, being part of a group. Some things have to be personally owned. You know, that deep down personal ongoing relationship with Christ, delighting in Christ, seeking to be conformed ever more into a likeness of Christ through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That belongs to us individual, as they grow into love and knowledge of Christ. Last week, we were looking at uh, chapter 24, and Rich Fairburn, uh, was, as I say, was preaching on it, and um, he mentioned that some people have a card which marks uh, the date when they made a profession of faith, Jesus. You know, it's a memorable day, and they have that card to remind them. Yet, as wonderful as it is, if that's all it is, an event some way back in your life which has had little bearing or change on your life since then. 
Is it wise to uh, rely on that event to secure your eternal future? An assumption that our future is unconditionally assured, I think is unwise. A false assurance is no assurance. You know, I can turn up to church every Sunday, take part in Bible studies, read Christian books, whatever else, but without that personal faith in Christ, how ready am I for Christ's return? Faith, hope, the promise of salvation. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians should shape their lives uh, as they ready themselves for Christ's return. So to ourselves, I would suggest, knowing that Christ will come again, even though we don't know when, the hour, or the day, or the time. Taking heed also of those warnings that it will be a time when it will be too late. And as I close, please, I hope you don't misunderstand me. You know, I've talked about, you know, not assuming unconditionally that our eternal future is assured by some past event. I've talked about having that living, active relationship. Um, I don't want that to in any way seeds, um, sow seeds of doubt in people's minds or their, their faith uh, in any way to doubt it. This is what J.C. Ryle, who put it uh, far more eloquently and elegantly by than I have just done, but J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century of Liverpool. He was an evangelical, Bible-believing uh, bishop. And he was talking about holiness, but I think it's just as appropriate here as you know we've been thinking about getting ready for Christ's return. And so he said, but here, let me say, I trust no man will misunderstand me. I'm not without <clears throat> fear that my meaning will be mistaken. And description I've given of holiness will discourage some tender conscience. I would not willingly make one righteous heart sad or throw a stumbling block in any believer's way. So with that in mind, though, we have to remember that final verse, don't we? Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you will return. We don't know when. And you call us until then to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep living out our faith through the power of your Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as we think of um, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, let, let faith and love be our breastplate. And let us have that hope of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray this now in his name. Amen.